Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. I got up this morning, and I said, I had to, I talked to these eighth graders at a school, and what do you know? It was pouring rain. I know I've been bitching about this, people, but I moved back a month ago from sunny California, and I'm thinking, hey, it's May. You know, April has the showers. May has flowers. June, beginning of June, is supposed to be sunny. We have had complete cloudiness. I think we've had three days of sunshine, and that's when it was like 90 and 92. And I'm telling you, people, I'm getting a little cabin fever, and Joanne, she's going nuts because she's like, she, as I said, she lived in L.A. when it was one of the worst uh, this past, when we moved out this past winter, was a bad one after a drought. So she's gone crazy. So hopefully it will get sunny, because I do want to get down to the beach, but it was hard. I got up, and I swear to God, it was pouring, and I had to go be somewhere at 8 a.m., and I was up at 6.15, and it was pouring, but it cleared up, and uh, it stopped raining, and so anyway, I can't complain, though. Life's good. My life's good, because I have a great, great, a great guitarist on today, and uh, he's in Florida, where he's been getting rain. My guest is Steve Lynch. How you doing, Steve? And I'm doing great. Yes, it's raining down here, which is uh, much needed, so I'm, I'm not complaining at all. We had one heck of a long drought period there for like uh, a good eight months, so I'm glad the rain is back. Well, what's weird is, you know, I remember like I had been, I had gone to Florida, you know, and it's weird when they, people say there's a drought in Florida, because it used to be, when I was younger, I was at Fort Lauderdale and different places, I would visit, and it would, sometimes it would just start raining in the middle of the afternoon for like 15 minutes. Right. And that's typical su- uh, summer weather, um, you know, usually uh, June through, um, you know, like the middle of September, where you get in these thunderstorms that come in usually anywhere between 3 and 6 in the in the afternoon, and uh, it just comes down, it's like a heavy downpour, thunder and lightning and everything, and then 20 minutes later, it's gone. And it's always between those hours, between 3 and 6, you know, that, that they come in. So it's, it's kind of odd, but you can almost set your watch by it every day. <laughs> yeah, now, now what's funny is you were born in Seattle, right? Well, I was actually born in uh, Wollaston, North Dakota, but uh, we moved to Seattle when I was really young, only like uh, about two years old. So I grew, I grew up there, basically, and uh, stayed there until, oh, God, 1977 when I moved to L.A. and started going to the Guitar Institute of Technology, and then I stayed in L.A., for 15 years, and then speaking of Fort Lauderdale, which you just mentioned, um, I, I moved there for five years, and then I moved back to Seattle for 20 years, and then uh, now I'm back down in Florida. I moved down here last July, so it's been almost a year since I've been back down here now. So you got back to the Seattle that, that I was joking with my girlfriend. I said, it's been so cloudy back here. I thought I was in Seattle. Because, <laughs> you know, that's... Yes, a- exactly. <laughs> so, now, what... Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of... Uh, Cloudy months there, and that's what I kind of got sick of. But uh, Seattle's a great city, but uh, I just love the Seattle or the uh, Florida weather much better. Now, when did you start playing music? I know it was at a young age, I believe. And what got you into music? Was your household a musically inclined residence, or how did you start this guitar playing that you. You know, uh, there are no uh, musicians in my immediate family. Um, I, except for my dad would pick up guitar and play along with, uh, you know, Johnny Cash songs and stuff like that, and Charlie Pride and Merle Haggard and all that. And, and I was young. I was, um, oh, God, let's see. Um, I was uh, 1967 or 68 when I started playing bass. And that was um, because there was a kid on the block that already played guitar. He wanted to form a band. So I said, well, I'll play bass, you know. And, but I really wanted to play guitar. And then... Um, you know, a couple of years later, I, when Jimi Hendrix died, I switched over from guitar, or from bass to guitar. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, September 18th, 1970. I remember it very well. Were you? And so I've been playing ever since. Were so you? now 40, yeah, 42 years now. Now, were you a huge Hendrix fan? Is that what it is? Is that what you were submersing your music into? I mean, what made yeah, you? Yeah, I was. I was a huge, huge Hendrix fan. I loved, um, you know, the early Led Zeppelin stuff, um, you know, like the, the first first uh actually the first two albums i didn't know this until recently it came out in 1969 this first led zeppelin album came out in uh early 1969 and the second one came out in the, at the end of 1969 so i was totally into those guys and uh and then i was also into jeff beck he was a big influence on me i used to try to learn his stuff i sit there forever and and uh try to figure his stuff out i always loved his playing 
Um, and those were my basic bowl of Cheerios was Beck, Clapton, or not Clapton really, but Beck, um, Page, and uh, Hendrix. Now, was it easy for you to switch from bass to guitar? And what happened to that kid on the block with the guitar? Did he get pissed off? Oh, no, no, he didn't mind at all. He, he, you know, we still kept playing and everything, so that was all good. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away right after that, so uh, that was a very unfortunate thing. He was in an accident and, and passed away. But, uh, um, you know, the thing is, is I, I got my first guitar really at the age of nine back in 1964, and that's when I started playing. So I kind of started on guitar, but it was it was such a piece of crap. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a, like one of those old... Uh, Stella guitars or something like that. It was a Sears and Roebuck guitar where you order it and it was nine bucks, you know, and, and the thing was almost impossible to play. So, um, you know, I, I didn't get very far with it. Uh, I just learned, you know, a few songs like Gloria and stuff like that, the old, you know, 60s songs. And, uh, you know, but uh, so, you know, switched over to bass shortly after that and then uh, switched back to guitar. So, you know, it, it worked out well. I always, I've been noticing, now, did you take guitar lessons or did you just teach yourself? Because what I've been noticing is a lot of these, I've had some really amazing guitarists on my show, and I love guitar work, and I'm, I'm always envious because I stunk at music, I, you know, I was awful. But I noticed a lot of, a lot of guitar players in their early years were self-taught. Were you self-taught or did you take classes when you were younger? Uh, no, I didn't take classes. Um, I was self-taught. Um, I learned everything... You know, people, you know, other guitar players that were older than me, they would show me some things, and, um, and uh, but I never took a, a you know, official lessons. Uh, uh, what I did was I would sit down with records, and I would just wear out spots on the record trying to figure out what uh, the guitarists were doing, and I would just do that over and over again. Eventually, I started taking lessons from a guy named Don Mockins in uh, West Seattle, and uh, he, he taught more like jazz fusion type stuff, which really opened me up to that whole world. And um, I got really interested in that. He, he showed me, you know, my scales and which chords work together and stuff like that. And so I was touring at the time, actually. This is, we're talking about 
uh, outlook, you know, when I, when, I, when I would play music, I would think in jazz terms a lot and use chromatic scales and harmonic minor and, and stuff and, and, you know, a lot of scales that people wouldn't normally use in rock playing. And uh, that was thanks to them, you know, the, all the information that they were giving me. And um, I remember when I was going there, um, everything was in notation. And I, it was difficult for me to read notation, especially chords, because you'd have to figure out the fingering for the chord because it would just be a, a group of notes together, and that would represent the chord. Um, and so that was difficult for me. So what I started to do with their whole curriculum was I started to write it out in guitar graph form, which means I hand drew out a guitar neck. And I just started um, writing down everything that they gave me, all the curriculum, and I started writing it down on that guitar graph. And I had stacks and stacks of paper, just literally thousands of papers, you know, on, uh, written out that way, their whole curriculum. Well, they saw it and they said, hey, can we use that? And I said, yeah, sure. And so they, they did it up. They did it, you know, professionally with a professional printer and everything. And, uh, and wow, you know, they're still using a lot of that stuff even today. You know, um, this was even before TAP. There was no TAP back then. Uh, TAP came around years later. So uh, that graph form was, was uh, something that uh, just really seemed to work for me because then you could see the chord shape, you could see which fingers you use. You could see the, the um, you know, which I, I would put down which rhythm to play underneath it and everything. And uh, it worked out really well. And I still teach that way to this day. And so, uh, actually, when I wrote my books, I wrote it in that format as well, with notation on top of the graph form, and, and everybody got it. They understood it very well. Now, as you were playing, I mean, as you were in school, you know, and you were writing the, the graphs and all that stuff out, did you have time to practice rock, or were you just concentrating on what your curriculum was at that time, or did you sit there? Because I would think, you know, when you go from school, I know you love playing guitar, but you're in school all day, and you're working with a guitar. When you got home, would you practice, and would you jam, or would you just practice what you learned at school? I mean, how was it helping you grow as a guitarist? I would I would usually just practice at the school. Um, what they did, uh, because I didn't have a job or anything, they actually... Um, hired me on at the school to do all of the uh, printing out all the papers for all the next lessons in all the classrooms and set up the rooms whichever way that they need to be, you know, as far as if it was, it was going to be a live performance or just a classroom if they needed a projector set up. And so they hired me to do that. So they gave me a room in the back of the of the school. This was, in, you know, like one of the, the earliest stages of the school. It's 5858 Hollywood Boulevard, right on the corner of Hollywood Freeway and Hollywood Boulevard. The building is still there, actually. And um, so I would sit back in that room, and I would practice all of their curriculum. I wasn't doing too much writing at the time. I was coming up with ideas because I was learning all these new chords and stuff. So uh, some of those ideas came songs later on. But um, I, I would just practice the curriculum. And what I would do, because I had my own room there, is I would stay in there anywhere from 8, 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes as long as 16 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, I didn't do anything for the whole year that I was going there. I didn't see a movie or anything. I mean, I was just completely, you know, immersed in their whole curriculum and, and just trying to better my, my playing. And, and um, it just worked out very well because I had a very private setting of my own private room to practice in. And then when I went home, I'd just sleep, get up the next day, get some coffee and go back to school again and just do the same thing over and over again for a whole year. So as you're playing so, and you're learning... It worked these, out. Yeah, but as you're learning these different styles... What was your, in your mind, because you're still a young guy, in your mind, what do you, where do you think you're going to go in your career? Are you thinking, I want to play jazz guitar? What are you thinking at that age? Like, did you have a career path where you thought your guitar would be playing? Or did you just say, if I get a gig just playing guitar, any style that I like, I'll be happy? Well, I was still a rock player. That's basically what I was. You know, I just wanted to incorporate some of these other. Uh, jazz influences and classical influences that I was learning into my playing. But, no, I was still a rock player. At that time, back in 1977, 78, um, I was still wearing bell bottoms and platform shoes. So I was a rock guy, you know, and had a shag haircut back then. So, uh, no, I was totally a rock guy. I was like the only guy that looked like that in the whole school and, and the only guy that basically played a solid body guitar. Everybody else had their big, you know, thick, uh, Gibson 175s or 335s or whatever, and they were all there doing the whole jazz thing. But I was incorporating it uh, more into uh, a rock format. In fact, when I played, when I performed there, I would always get together with the rhythm section and have them play 
you know, like say balls to the walls, guys, this is going to be, we're going to be heavy, you know, uh, we're going to do this like more upbeat and everything. We'd be playing jazz standards like that. And uh, the students uh, really enjoyed it. Some of the traditional teachers didn't like it so much, but, but uh, you know, the students really enjoyed it because I, I made it my own thing. And, um, you know, while I was going there too, I, I, there was, I, I decided to, to not listen to other guitar players as far as, you know, like my old influences like Hendrix, Page, and Beck. Um, but I did listen to a couple, like there was Al Gimiola, because I, I loved his way of playing, you know, the harmonic minor scale and the, out of the Phrygian mode all the time, the Spanish minor. And I really got into Alan Holsworth. And uh, I, from, he was in the band UK at that time, and uh, he was also playing with Jean-Luc Pony uh, on an album called uh, Enigmatic Ocean. And I wore those albums out. I was trying to learn all of his solos and everything. I thought he was doing everything two-handed, so I was trying to figure it out two-handed. And then somebody told me, they said, hey, look, at he does most all that stuff with just his left hand. He's got this incredible reach on the fingerboard. He's got these really long fingers. And uh, so, uh, but I was still trying to figure it out two-handed, you know, because I couldn't do that reach, you know. And uh, But he was my final influence. I didn't listen to anybody else. And um, also when I was writing down the curriculum, I was really into, like, the two-handed thing because um, I had played it, you know, there was a guy in Seattle, Steve Buffington, that uh, used to do that, and I asked him to show me a couple of things, and he showed me a couple of things, and that uh, Don Mock, my old, my old teacher, did as well. And I got the idea first when I was, like, 15 years old. I saw Harvey Mandel, uh, who used to play with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Um, he would do that stuff. He would use two or three fingers, and I, I thought, that's, that's really cool looking. You know, I actually was so young when I saw him that I stood outside the back door of this bar downtown Seattle, and I watched him play from back there because I wasn't old enough to get into the club, obviously. And um, so that's what got me started into it uh, back in 1970, actually. So um, I, I, I kept on doing it, you know, kept on incorporating a little bit here and there. But when Emmett Chapman, the inventor of the Chapman stick, did a clinic at the, at the uh, Guitar Institute, when I first started going there, he was playing all this stuff on the Chapman stick, which was, you know, you play with your left hand, you play on the higher strings, um, uh, or either you play on the lower strings, which is all the bass notes. It's like you're comping on piano, like the, like the lower notes on the keyboard. And then on his, with his right hand, he'd be playing the higher notes on the other five strings uh, to, to play the melody and to play solos and stuff. So he was incorporating both playing the bass line and chord shapes with his left hand and, and uh, solo triads and everything with his right hand and uh i thought that's just incredible during the clinic he mentioned that uh he got so far with guitar that he decided you know what i'm going to come to my own instrument and so he did after after a lot of experiment he came up with the instrument the stick and um but by him saying that that he got so far with guitar that really intrigued me so i thought okay what did this guy do on guitar to get him to the point of actually creating his own instrument and so I asked him after the clinic, and he said, well, can I see your guitar? And so I handed him my guitar, and he said, look, at here's like one shape of the pentatonic scale. Now, here's another shape you could do with your right hand up above it. And he played this sequence, and I just went, that's just incredible. And so what I did was I started taking everything that I was learning from the Guitar Institute, and I started writing it down to play with two hands. I'm talking about all the scale positions, the pentatonics, the, the, the harmonic minor, the, the major minor scales, and triads, arpeggios, you know, everything I could think of uh, that I could actually do two-handed. And I kept on writing and writing it down. By the end of the year, I had this huge stack of papers that I had written out for two-handed two you know, guitar playing. And I thought, this would be really cool to get into a book. And then Howard Roberts, the guy that was writing the curriculum for the school, saw me do it at the graduation ceremony. And he said, I've never seen anybody get so involved with it as you have. You played all your solos and your chord stuff and everything using both hands, you know, and I, I, I just went up and played a couple of songs, and, and I hadn't showed anybody what I was doing the whole year, the whole year that I was going there, except for uh, Jennifer Batten, I was showing her stuff, and she got really good at it. She got really good at the, the two-handed technique, and, and uh, so, you know, she still gives me credit to this day for showing her a lot of the stuff early on. Um, but after that graduation ceremony, when I played those, Howard Roberts said, I want to get you into my publisher, and I want you to write a book on this. And I said, Howard, I already have a book. I mean, I have probably two or three books that, that I could easily do. And so 
we went into his publisher, and I got a publishing deal right away. I played for the guy, for the owner, Dale Zdenek, of the, the publishing company, um, for like 10 minutes. And he said, you got it. It sold. You know? and so my first book came out in 1979. A lot of people, uh, because I got a little bit more popular later on, they thought I got the idea from, from Eddie Van Halen. But I didn't know who he was because I was so immersed in the whole jazz thing, and I wasn't listening to radio at all or other guitar players that were current or from the past, except, like I said, Alan Holsworth and Al G. Viola. Those were the only guys I was listening to at that time. And um, so, you know, a lot of people thought that I had actually got the idea from Eddie. Well, I'm actually a week older than Eddie. And um, so it, it, it was just like one of those things where um, then I heard him on the radio and I heard Eruption. I went, oh, cool, somebody got it out there. They got it on the radio. That's great. You know, that kind of, that kind of paves the way for me being able to sell some of these books and also will help you know, maybe catapult my career a little bit. And so, you know, the, I got the book out and it was a bestseller. I was, I was amazed because I was basically an un, completely unknown at that time. And uh, so it worked out, it worked out very well. Yeah. So, I mean, that must be pretty uh, crazy. You're unknown. You're pretty much an unknown. You have a best-selling book. When do you sit there and say, you know, okay, I got to join a band. I have to get out there. Cause I mean, I'm sure you weren't getting stage time real. I mean, you were, you weren't playing clubs or anything because you were at school and doing these books. When did you just focus on, on getting into a band? Well, uh, that was after I graduated and after my book came out, um, I was actually doing a lot of session work at that time because, you know, I was pretty diversified. I could, I could play on different styles of music and everything. I played with uh, Japanese artists. I played with a lot of American artists. Um, and so uh, it, then I started to meet all the local musicians, you know, that were that were not in the school, that were actually musicians in L.A. And um, uh, I started to connect with people. I actually was en ended up playing in four bands at the same time. Uh, one was my own, like, fusion, jazz fusion rock group. And um, then I played in another group called Eva Beat that was more uh, new wave kind of stuff. And then I played in... Um, uh, another group called uh, Looker, and then I was playing at a group called The Word, uh, which was more pop type type of stuff. So I was playing um, in these four very different sounding bands. But the group Looker, that kind of morphed into what Autograph became, because it was um, with the singer, Steve Plunkett. And so I played in the later version of Wolfgang with him also, which they were very popular um, in L.A., in fact, Van Halen used to open up for Wolfgang um, back in back in the club days, and so uh, uh, you know, I got we we kind of kept together, and then we we started forming this band. We got we got Randy, uh, the bass player. Uh, he was playing with Lita Ford at the time. We got um, uh, uh, Kenny, the uh, drummer, who was playing with a group called The Coup on A and M Records, and Steve Plunkett himself actually was playing with Silver Condor with Earl Slick on Columbia Records. And uh, so we basically just got together and started jamming on the weekends because Steve Plunkett owned the PA that Victory Rehearsal Series used to use in, in, uh, in North Hollywood. And so since he owned the PA there, they, they let us rehearse there for free on the weekends. So we'd, we'd just pick a day out of the weekend, you know, Saturday or Sunday. We had some spare time because we were all done, you know, recording with our our other bands, I was playing in a group with the keyboard player, which was an autograph, Steve Isham. Um, we were playing in a group with called Holly Penfield on Dreamland Records at the time. So we all had record deals, and we were all playing, um, but mainly just recording. We weren't touring, so we had that time to go in and kind of do a side project, which ended up being autographed. Well, what happened with that was... Um, during one of the rehearsals, you know, we were writing songs together and everything, and we invited down Andy Johns, uh, who's, you know, famous for, you know, working with Led Zeppelin and John the Popular um, Engineers in, in, um, in London and later in L.A. Um, from working with all these huge names. And um, he came down to rehearsal, and he loved our um, original stuff. He said, hey, guys, I've got free time. It's down at Gower Studios down on Sunset Boulevard. Let's go and cut a demo next weekend. And so we did. We went down and cut a five-song demo. And uh, we actually turned up the radio. It was called Turn Up the Tape Machine, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Later on, turned it up to turn up the radio. Yeah. So um, anyways, uh, we went and, and did that demo. It came out very well. We just did the whole thing on a weekend. You know, we recorded all the parts in one day. And then the next day, we mixed and, 
and mixed it and everything. I made some, up some copies. And Kenny, the drummer at the time, was jogging um, every day with David Lee Roth. They would meet up at David's place on, in uh, West Hollywood and, and go jogging at 8.30 every morning. And so um, David asked him what he was doing, and, and Kenny says, hey, I just, you know, playing in this group called The Coup on A&M Records, but, you know, check out this new demo, you know, that... Uh, that um, we just we just got with Andy Johns, and so David said, "Yeah, we'll, we'll get some jogging. Let's go back up, and we'll we'll put it in." And, and David loved it, you know. And so he said, "What are you guys doing?" You know, like the beginning part of 1984. And, and uh, Kenny said, "Well, I think all of us are pretty much free." Um, I know Randy was supposed to do some touring with Lita Ford at that time, but um, um, we got together and we thought, you know what? Let's uh, let's go out and do some shows with Van Halen. So we. We wrote a few more songs. We had like a 10-song set, and we went out and drove from L.A. to Jacksonville, Florida, in an old rundown Winnebago, and uh, borrowed money for gas and food on the way there, and, and went out and opened for Van Halen for like uh, five, six months, you know. And during that time, all these labels were coming to check us out. And, you know, there was, there was RCA, there was Warner Brothers, there was uh, Epic Records, and, and uh, all these labels, and they were throwing offers at us, we're going, God, we're still in these bands back home, but we're having a lot of fun doing this, we enjoy playing with each other, we had a great time together, and so we thought, you know what, let's go ahead and quit our other bands and, and do this, you know, and and uh, so we did it, we signed a deal with RCA backstage at Madison Square Gardens, you know what's, when we were touring with Van Halen. You know, it's funny, now that I think about it, I grew up near Philadelphia, where I'm living now, and I saw the 80. Yeah. The '84 tour at the Spectrum. So you, I saw you right, guys. Right, we played the Spectrum. Yes, we played the Spectrum um, several times. We played it with Van Halen. We played it with Motley Crue. Uh, we played it with uh, Aerosmith. I think we played it with Heart also. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the Spectrum. Yeah. So, so that's great. Yeah. Uh, when you said Philadelphia, I thought Spectrum. Yeah. You know, that's that's probably where you would have seen us at. Yeah. I saw the '84 tour. I remember me and my buddies from college. Uh, we went and we took the. Uh, it's called the speed line. We took that in, and I still remember. That's it's so funny. So now, now you sit there and you sign this contract at Madison Square Garden. Well, one thing to sign a record contract is awesome. Two, to sign it at Madison Square Garden is much cooler. What did you guys expect then when you signed that? Did you know you were going into the album? Were you, uh, were you going to be re using some of the stuff from your demo? How did you formulate doing that album? Well, what we did was we... We continued to write, you know, when we were on tour with Van Halen. At that time, we had a, a pretty good selection of songs. And we decided, you know, let's go ahead um, and, and really tighten up these songs and get all the parts together and everything. And, and RCA actually said, okay, guys, um, it's time to come back to L.A. So we quit the Van Halen tour, and we went back to L.A. to, to record the album. And uh, we went in uh, with Neil Curtin producing, great producer, did a, just a fantastic job on it. And um, so we did it, and um, RCA actually didn't want the song Turn Up the Radio to be on the album. And we're going, no, this is this got to be on the album. Radio stations are going to love it because it's called Turn Up the Radio. They're going to use it. And so um, we, we recorded it in any way, and we talked them into putting, on, putting it on the album. They wanted to release Sender to Me as the first single, but we said, no, 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 it's got to be Turn Up the Radio. And we got our way, and then once it was released as the first single, then RCA took credit and said, yeah, this was our idea. And we were, we were like laughing about typical record company stuff, you know, like they'll take credit when they actually weren't involved with, the, with that decision at all. But um, it worked out uh, really well um, because shortly after that, then all of a sudden everything just snowballed. We had to do all these, um, all the call letters like, hey, turn it up, KNAC, this is autograph, you know. And... They love that. We had to go in for two days, two eight-hour days, to do all of the stations throughout the U.S. that started with K and on the East Coast that started with W. And uh, so it, it was It was like, you know, it, it took us a long time because we all of us said it together. This is autograph, you know, turn up the radio, you know, whichever station it was. And we sent those out, and that just caught on fire because they would play that. All these stations would play that before they played the song. And that's what really catapulted our career right there. Now, what's it like as you, you're doing these promos and you're feeling your song is getting popular? Are you When do you go to tour after you've done that album? And when you did start touring again, 
did everybody know that song? So you knew you had that automatic go-to that the crowd will like. Yes, after after we got done with the first album, and that that uh, song came out and it caught on fire. You know, then everybody, you know, everywhere we played, um, you know, uh, just everybody would sing along with that song. So it was really cool. We toured with. I think one of the first ones after that was. Um, I know in '85 we were with uh, Aerosmith um, and uh, oh god, I think Brian Adams and uh, let's see. Then we started touring with Motley Crue, um, and then uh, God, who else after that? Um, Heart and um, yeah, but you know everybody knew the, knew the songs by that. You know they not only turned up the radio, but they knew a lot of the songs. People were singing along with like Deep End and and Cloud 10 and stuff, and everybody knew a lot of the songs at that time, because the record was really selling well, and uh, it was it was so cool to see that, you know, I, I, you know, the first time you hear your song on the radio, we were all together, too, we heard it on the radio all together, um, actually, and that's when we were starting our tour, um, I believe, with Aerosmith, and we heard it on the radio, and we just went, wow, this is, this is really cool, you know, we're, we're actually getting radio play, and we were, we were listening to it for the first time, all of us together on the tour bus. So that was really cool. But that was a very cool moment. I remember it very well. And uh, you also got the Guitar Solo of the Year from Guitar Magazine for that song, right? Yeah, I, I th- think it was Guitar Guitar World. And um, then recently, you know, and I was writing, um, let's see, uh, columns for Guitar World, Guitar, Guitar for the Practicing Musician, and uh, Guitar Player magazine. So I was writing columns for all three of those magazines at the time. And um, so that that was a really nice treat. And then recently, um, I, I was really surprised. Somebody said, hey, you know, you're in this this, this English magazine. It's like a, a worldwide publication. And they it's the top 100 guitar solos of all time. And they said, turn up the radio, made number 49. So I went, wow, really, that's so cool, you know, that... Uh, that I actually got a song in the top 100, let alone the top 50. You know, and I thought I thought that was awesome. So, um, a friend of mine sent me the magazine, and uh, you know, so I just went, "Wow, that's that's an awesome honor to have that." You know, and, and turn up the radio. Um, actually, made it into the top 100 you know, songs, rock songs of all time. It made 93, so it, it inched in there. But uh, you know, I was glad to see that it made it into the top 100 as well. Now, you called your two-hand technique hammering. Is that what it is? Yeah, because um, there wasn't a, such a thing as tapping at the time. It, I, and besides, I didn't tap. I hammered. I, 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 really, I really slammed down on the notes. I mean, I really, you know, really hit the guitar neck hard um, when I'm doing that. Uh, and so the tapping thing, that came out years later, but I, I called it the hammer-on technique because um, that's what I was doing, was really hammering onto the notes. And, um, you know, but, uh, you know, they called the, the, the books, you know, the, the first book was called The Right Touch, and then the second and third books were called Right Touch Book 2 and Book 3. But um, it said the art of hammering notes with your right hand on the, on the, on the fingerboard. So that's, that's what it was, it, and it kind of stuck like that. And then later on, like I said, the tapping um, phrase came out. Was it true that Eddie Van Halen didn't want you to do that when you guys opened for him? Yes, that's true. Um, Noel Monk, their manager, um, uh, approached me and said, Hey, you know, that's, that's Eddie's thing, you know, and, and, uh, and I said, well, not really. I had written a book about it before, you know, Van Halen was even really known. Um, but he said, well, you, you can't do that on this tour. You know, that's, you know, Eddie had heard about me, you know, through people in LA, you know, when he would play that technique, you know, he'd usually just use the, his index finger on his right hand. And um, they'd say, hey, have you heard this guy, Steve Lynch? He uses all four fingers. He's doing all these inter- interval designs and everything and, and uh, you know, triads and arpeggios and everything. And Eddie would get really upset when he heard my name. And so then when he found out I was on the tour, he got, he didn't like that at all. <laughs> but I, I've always looked at it like, you know, I, I'm not a competitive player at all. I just look at it like, I don't care how, you know, fast anybody is. I don't care about that. It's just... I look at it more like, hey, come up with your with your own technique, perfect it, be original, and that's going to be your key, you know, right there. And be a songwriter, you know, and really, really understand that. Because a lot of the players out there, yeah, they can play a million notes a minute, but the thing is, is they, they don't sit down and they don't 
listen to other styles of guitar to try to incorporate into into their into their and, and then make make it into their own thing. Um, and I think that's very important, not to just listen to rock other rock players that are already playing a million miles a minute. That doesn't matter because you know you, you look at your, even just in Japan, you've got a million little kids sitting there in their bedroom that can just fly through the guitar deck with with, with just ease. And they're like 13, 14 years old. But the thing is, the key is songwriting, and the key is coming up with something that's really unique. And a lot of people don't realize that. Um, hey, you know, if it's vibrato arm, you know, that, that you work with, that really slurred the notes together, it's a legato type of thing that you work with, you know, do something different than everybody else is doing. Otherwise, you're not going to stick out. You know, you're going to just be, you're going to be categorized as the same as everybody else. So what? You're a really fast player. That really doesn't matter. There's millions and millions of you all over the world already. And so I really stipulate that to my students. Really think of something that, that you feel inside you. Like, like even listen to guitar players that really influence you from different styles and try to incorporate that and make it your own style. And, and, and just try to really incorporate things that make you stand out. And that's the thing. You know, uh, that I really try to instill in them is that, that you've got to have your own thing going on. Now, with when, with your first album and when, you know, Turn Up the Radio was such a big hit. I mean, it was on Miami Vice. It was in a bunch of different stuff. What is it like when you guys, it's your first album and it goes gold and it goes platinum. What's going through your mind? Because, you know, that's that's a kick-ass first album and you have this huge hit. What what are you guys thinking? Like, are you sitting there going, "Man, this is gonna be a pain in the ass to to repeat"? Or what goes through your mind? Do you guys just say, "Let's just go with it, keep writing, and just see what happens"? That's exactly what we did. We went with it, kept writing, and uh, my initial thought was, "Wow, I can I can pay the rent and I can pay back people that I borrowed money from to to remain being a musician." And that's the first thing I did. Was uh, I paid back the people that I owed money, you know, that I had borrowed money from. And, uh, and I was able to pay rent. So that was like a big thing. I'm able to pay rent. I'm able to buy food. This is great. I'm actually making a living off being a guitar player, you know. And so that that was a big a big deal for me. That was very cool. Um, you know, before that, you know, I was I was teaching also. There was, uh, in fact, I teach at Musonia, which was where Randy Rhodes used to teach. You know, um, his mom hired me on there. Uh, at the school in North Hollywood for for a while, and so I was making a living off teaching, but I was wasn't making a living off off playing. I was playing in all the clubs, you know, with the different bands that I was playing in. But it usually in LA you had to pay to play, and so um, it, it, even if you did make any money, it was you know maybe a hundred bucks, you know, and that's it. So it didn't go very far. Um, so there was struggling times. So I was really glad to actually be able to have an income coming in from playing guitar that was just amazing to me and um but as far as our our thoughts together as a group we just looked at it like yeah let's let's keep this going um and just keep writing and everything and and keep doing that unfortunately when our second album came out um rca was going through a bunch of changes and then um, when the third album came out um loud and clear which i i was just like I think it's just a, a great album. I really do. I mean, I listen to it today, and I think, God, it's really a good, great album. You know, I, I really enjoy listening to it. The writing and the production, and this is where Andy Johns came in, and he produced that third album and uh, engineered it, So and mixed it as well. Um, so he kind of came back around full circle. He did our first demo, and then he did our last album with RCA. Um, but um, Bob uh, Summers uh, from RCA, the, the president, died and Bob Buziak took over and so they were going through all these changes and so as far as promotion and, and, and really getting the publicity out on the new album um, it took a back seat and it wasn't only us, it was the Pointer Sisters it was Kenny Rogers it was Mr. Mister, it was the Eurythmics, all these bands really took a hit from all the personnel changes that were going on in the New York and LA offices with RCA and so that just happens, the, the timing. And, uh, you know, it's like Mr. Mr. has a quadruple platinum album. The next one didn't even, I don't even think it went gold. So, and that's, and it was, the, the second album was just every bit as good as their first album. So um, it was just 
unfortunate. I used to talk to Steve Ferris, the guitar player, Mr. Mister. We, me and him at, at um, uh, this, the same Mexican restaurant on Ventura Boulevard um, in L.A. Uh, all the time, so I'd always run into him down there, and we'd talk about it, and, and we'd bitch about RCA. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things, you know, what can, what can you do, you know? Uh, it was unfortunate that it happened, but it wasn't only us, it was other major label, or major major acts that, that were, uh, you know, really suffering from that change in RCA as well. So then after your third album, you guys, you broke up or how that, what happened to the band? Well, we, we still kept on touring, but at that time, we're, we're talking 1989. Um, that's when, you know, Guns N' Roses kind of, Guns N' Roses just kind of slid in under, under the radar. Because they were a rock band, but they weren't really... Well, if you look at the first, you know, videos, they were kind of a glam band. If you look at, you know, Axel's hair and everything. and and um, But they kind of slipped in under the radar. But they had a rawer sound. So they didn't fit into that polished, you know, homogenized, pasteurized sound that uh, all the bands were going for in the 80s with the production there. there was It was like overly produced. that needed to be more raw. And they came in with that, and they... They just, they were right, their timing couldn't have been more perfect because right then, the whole grunge thing from Seattle, Nirvana, um, you know, and Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam, and everything were coming out, and, and uh, they were, they were like hitting the radio waves heavy, and so that's when we decided, you know what, the 80s thing is over, it's at the end of the 80s, and it's over, we have literally broke up at the end of 1989, in December of 89, and, um, you know, we, we still remain friends and everything. Um, uh, you know, to this day, uh, unfortunately, the keyboard player, you know, had passed away uh, eight years ago, and uh, the drummer just passed away only um, about four months ago, um, unfortunately. And um, so, um, you know, when we decided, you know, uh, to get back together, you know, um, which was three and a half years ago, um, we asked Steve Plunkett, the original singer, if he wanted to do it. He said he's too busy with recording stuff and writing for the movie and television stuff, which he'd done really well at. And um, he said, I don't think my voice would handle being on tour again, which I understand. You know, the voice is a very hard thing to keep up when you when you get older. Um, and so he, he passed on it, and he gave us his blessings. And so we um, got in connection uh, with... Uh, Simon Daniels through Larry Moran, the guy that does the boxes of rock cruises, and he kind of turned us on to the, to him, and so he was a perfect fit um, for doing the old stuff and for you know writing you know the new stuff. And uh, then um, Kenny was 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 having some troubles, you know, he was having financial troubles, uh, the original drummer, and so he was unable to do it. And so we uh, got Simon's friend uh, that he used to play with in a group called Flood. Uh, Mark Wyland, who's from Switzerland, but was had been living in LA for quite some time. Uh, we got him to play uh, drums, and he was a perfect fit as well. Randy, the bass player, just automatically loved him, you know, because they, they just fit into the grooves right away, and it worked out perfectly. And uh, yeah, so we kind of have an international band now. It's like, um, you know, the drummer's from Switzerland, and Simon, uh, you know, the singer, he's from Brazil. And uh, so... You know, but it works out very well because we have different influences. You know, they were all influences, but influenced by different people back when, when uh, they were forming their their technique and their their sounds. So it kind of worked out very well. Now, after you guys broke up, did you concentrate on teaching, or what did you do? Because you were a very accomplished teacher, and it seems like something that you know you can give back to the music community, and you're very respected as a guitarist. So it probably be people would be very you know fortunate to be one of your students. After the breakup, what what went through your mind just for the fact that you were playing? You know, you had a huge, huge hit. You have gold and platinum out a gold and platinum album. What? Where? How do you start to read you know redefine yourself? Well, what I did from that point on is uh, um, right towards the end of Autograph, I started doing a lot of clinics for uh, St. Louis Music, and then it like turned into this whole thing where. They wanted me out all the time doing these clinics, and so I ended up doing, you know, clinics in all the states except for Maine and Alaska, and I did um, uh, Australia, all of Australia, New Zealand, um, I did uh, Mexico, I did all throughout Europe, 
and I did 325 clinics in 20 different countries. So it was they had me very busy, and it was it was really good money. So I enjoyed doing it, and I got to see you know parts of the world that I'd never been to before. So it was that was very exciting to do, and I was promoting my my books. I had three out at that time, and my instructional video, um, and. Um, I was also promoting, you know, St. Louis products like Ampeg and Crate Amps, and um, and so it worked out very well for both of us. Um, and then after that, I started teaching uh, privately, and um, I started working on my my solo album, and which was called Network Twenty Three. And um, that one, I never really officially released it. I just released it, you know, um, you know, through. Uh, social media later on, you know, back in 2004, I started doing that, and then uh, through CD Baby out of Portland and stuff, and and um, so I never really officially re- released it. I'm actually talking to a guy right now that does licensing, and we're thinking about re-releasing it. Um, with the, I, re- re- I remastered it, so it sounds um, quite a bit better than the original recording, and we're looking at re-releasing that, and uh, and uh, so hopefully that will happen uh, this year as well. Um, and then we, of course, autograph new autograph. We just completed our new album. Um, it's called uh, "Get Off Your Ass." Uh, <laughs> you know, so we're we're going to be doing a video for that uh, for the title song, and we're going to be uh, you know uh, continue touring. Right now, we're doing a lot of um, the larger clubs, festivals, state fairs, casinos, stuff like that. And so, in fact, I leave again uh, tomorrow morning. We go back out on the road again, and so. Um, that's working out very well, but um, I'm also writing again now for another solo album because um, my way of writing doesn't necessarily just fit into the whole 80s format. In fact, that's really not me. I'm more of a 70s guy and more experimental. I always liked bands like, um, you know, like I said, Led Zeppelin, which kind of, they just kind of wrote whatever they felt like. It's just they didn't mean, they didn't certainly didn't try to write singles. The same thing with Pink Floyd. They blended their songs together on the albums so that you couldn't use them as singles, but then the, the FM radio stations at that time would play the whole side of the album, and they, then they would flip it over and they'd play the other side of the album. And um, that was early on in the FM years, like, um, you know, uh, basically FM started in the late 60s. It was an underground thing, and AM was the main thing that everybody listened to in their car. Um, but then FM took over because everybody liked the format more because they didn't have any advertisements back then. They would just play full albums and then to have the DJ come on and, and say, okay, next, the next album we're going to play is this. You know, so everybody went to listening to FM. And, um, you know, that's kind of dating myself. That goes way back. Well, before FM radio, you know. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I remember that change very well, how the whole thing came down. And... Uh, and, and it was really cool to listen to these bands, you know, uh, and hear the whole album in, in its entirety, where they were just experimenting, and I really enjoyed that. One of the bands I listen to now is Porcupine Tree, which their their stuff is 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 more experimental, and um, they don't do singles. Their songs can sometimes be six, seven minutes long, but the writing, the production, the arrangement, and the playing on it is is just superb. Um, they're, they're based out of London and they've been around since the nineties, but, uh, they're not, they're not really big in the United States. They have a cult following here, but when I went and visited, uh, you know, Amsterdam and Paris and London, you know, just as a vacation, um, uh, back in 2009, um, they were playing their stuff on, on the radio. And I asked the cab driver, I said, is is this a mixtape or CD that you did, you know? And, and um, he said, oh, no, this is this is being played on the radio here. They're very popular. And he said they are throughout Europe. I said, wow, you'd never hear Porcupine Tree or Delirium or Massive Attack or any of these groups, Conjure One or anything, because they're too experimental. They've never played them in the United States on any radio station. And so I was really pleased to hear that they were playing, you know, bands that I was listening to at the time. And um, so... Uh, you know, my my album, what my point is, is my my album, the one that I did, Network 23, is more experimental, and of course, my new album will be a lot more experimental as well, because I, I like to just write what I feel, and I don't like to think about, well, is this fit for radio? I don't like to think with that head, 
uh, you know, that whole headset on. You know, I like to, I like to think more like, just this is the music I want to write. This is the, the guitar playing that I want to play on it, and uh, and just have that complete freedom to be able to do that. Now, with the, with the latest um, autograph album, you said you, it's, it's newer band. It's different guys, different, more international. Is the writing different than your earlier days because it's different people? Well, yes, it is, but we're we're kind of still sticking with that, you know, arena type um, uh, format of the the choruses being really big. Um, so it still has that '80s vibe to it, but it's heavier. We're now tuned down a whole step, and uh, um, you know, it's, it's there's no keyboards in there, uh, just a lot of layers of guitars, and um, so it's 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 definitely different. Uh, you know, but it still has the elements of the writing. You know, it still has the the, the, the elements of the age type of writing that was uh, that made that format so popular. So now, when you when you go and you play, I know you're you're going to be up in uh, Connecticut in a few days, I believe. Yeah, Thursday. Um, now, when you play, what is the crowd going to get? Are they going to get you going to hit them with the early stuff? Then when do you play, oh, yeah. turn up the radio. When do you play, turn up the radio. Or is that your always? Is that your go-to encore song? Oh yeah, that, well that's that's the last song of the set. Yeah, always. You know, we always play that one. We stretch it out a little bit. We have a, a kind of a long intro to it and everything. And but uh, yeah, we, when we come out on stage, we hit them with "Deep End," "Dance All Night," uh, "Loud and Clear," um, uh, "Blondes and Black Cars," um, uh, "All I'm Gonna Take." You know, like like five or six songs in a row. That and send her to me. Those are like boom, 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 boom. We we, we go right to those old songs that people are familiar with, and um, and we hit them with that right away. And then we then we we throw in like um, three of the um, uh, of the of the newer songs, uh, you know, kind of in in the rest of the set. We mix them in with the rest of the set. Now, when you play, do you guys ever play covers, or and or what would a cover you would like to play where you could actually do a guitar solo you always wanted to play? Boy, let's see. A cover. Maybe comfortably numb, but that's not really in our genre, you know, but I, I love the guitar solo in that. You know, I, I I I teach that song so there's you know, I could um, gosh, let's see. Um I don't I like doing my own solo, so it's kinda hard to say what solo I would want to replicate. Um because I haven't really done that for so many years, basically since the seventies. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll write out solos for, for um, my students and stuff. I do that all the time. I, I write out just a huge gamut of solos for everybody to learn, you know, because I think it's good to learn a good variety of solos. But um, um, as far as covering a song, that's that's a tough one. It would probably be comfortably numb, actually, because I love the solo in that so much. Now, you still teach? Yes. I just started yesterday at a place called Music Matters up here in uh, Trinity, uh, Florida, just just 15 minutes north of where I'm at. And um, so now I'm going to be teaching there on Mondays and Tuesdays. And, uh, yeah, because I like teaching. I, I really do. I like sharing my ideas. I have a certain way that I teach that makes it really easy for the students to pick it up right away. Everything's done in that graph form that I was talking about earlier where – it's they look at, they're looking at the guitar neck. They can see the shapes right away. They can see which fingers to use and and the scales and everything. It's all right there. It makes it so much easier than tab or notation. And um, I've had I've even had teachers come to me to learn how to teach with my technique. I've, I've taught dozens and dozens of teachers how to teach this way, and uh, they said their students just absolutely love it because um, they catch on to it so quickly. And so, yeah, I just started yesterday, and I'll, I'm going to be going in uh, later on today and doing a couple classes, and then tomorrow morning I leave to back out on tour again. But, yeah, it feels really good to be teaching again because I haven't taught for a year. I had a, a, um, a music school in Seattle for 10 years, and um, when I moved down here uh, last July, I actually handed over the school to a friend of mine uh, up there that was teaching at the school and, and um, another guitar player, great guitar player, Leon Christian. And... Um, I just said, hey, you know, you can take over the school. I'm moving to Florida. And, and uh, so he took it over, and, and uh, so the school's still going. It's called Federal Way School of Music. And, uh, you know, if you look up fwschoolofmusic.com, you'll see that, you know, they have a write-up on there about me starting the school and everything and having it for 10 years. And um, But um, I enjoyed doing that. It was, it was, 
it was great owning my own school, but right now I, I can't really do that because I'm so busy with the band, with the new record coming out, and doing a video, um, and touring and everything. I, I can't run a school and do the band at the same time because I'm also the business manager and the, the tour manager for the group. So I take care of all the all the tour stuff. I take care of all the banking, all the accounting, all the taxes, and all that kind of stuff as well. So it keeps me very busy. Now... Do you, uh, when you tour, I mean, I always ask bands this, it must be great that you have fans that bring their kids. And I always think, you know, that must be a great feeling when you see that your music has touched people and it's passed on to generations. I mean, how does that make you feel? Like with a song, turn up the radio, you must just, you must just love it. I do. I, I look out there and I see, you know, their, their teenage kids, sometimes their kids are in their twenties, you know, and. And then I see the younger kids, and they're all out there singing along because their parents always play, you know, uh, like 80s stuff because that's what they grew up with. And, and the kids all love it because, you know, it's, it's all sing-along kind of stuff. I mean, that's one thing that the 80s really, really kept going from the 60s and the 70s was the stuff where you could sing along with the songs. Unfortunately, you know, when, when the whole 90s thing came about, that whole thing went out the window. All of a sudden, rock music wasn't that fun anymore. You couldn't sing along with it. And I, I call, like, the whole Seattle scene, I call, like, that's, like, that's the heroin suicide diaries right there. Because everybody, um, it was, uh, the lyrics and everything were so morose and they were so dark. And you, you didn't, weren't able to really sing along with the songs that were coming out of the, uh, most of the Seattle bands. Some of them you could, with, you know, like with Pearl Jam and, and Alice in Chains and stuff, you know, that it was, they, they, they had songs you could sing along with. But, but a good majority of it, it was, it was it was very dark. It wasn't about having fun anymore, and and um, and I think that people really missed that. So these these younger kids, they really latched on to the songs that they could sing along with, and their parents were listening to eighty stuff. And so, for me to look out there and see these younger kids and teenagers singing along with our songs, I go, this is great. This is really cool to see that. You know, the, the different generations still hanging on to that. I think it's really cool. Now, how many tour? How many dates do you want? Do you plan to play a year? Is there a set number? I mean, or do you just say you know you want to go out every once in a while? How does that work? Well, our goal is to basically get um, sixty a year. I want to get that to a hundred a year, and so each year that goes along, we've been doing it for for uh, three and a half years now, um, and we're getting more and more each year. And so I would, I would like to get it to 60, and then I want to try within the next year or two to get it to the point of playing 100 gigs a year. Cool, man. And like, like I said, we're, we're like weekend warriors. We'll go out and we'll just play the weekends, you know, and sometimes we'll be out for a week. Like when we do the Monsters of Rock cruise, that's a cruise, so we're out for a week. Um, and, um, but uh, most of the time we're just out on the weekends, so when I fly back on Sunday night, I can go back in and teach Monday and Tuesday and then fly back out on Wednesday and Thursday for the weekend. Cool. Well, you know, I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. You know, I, I hit up your agency because I got someone else for them, and I'm glad he set this up. Uh, now, now, do you, does Autograph have a website? Do you have a website? Yes, uh-huh. it's um, autographband.com, and you can also look us up at um, uh, you know, like just on Facebook. Okay. And you can it's you can you can join the whole thing. You can look at our tour dates and everything, and has all all everything that we're doing, release dates of albums, stuff like that. And and um, I also have a site where people can go to if you go to lynchlicks.com. It's just l y n c h l i c k s dot com. Um, then you or you can go onto YouTube. Just put in uh, youtube.com forward slash uh, Lynch Licks, and that'll pop up. And I have a bunch of solos and teaching stuff on there, cool. uh, so that people can view it. It's a variety of solos that I that I that I did. And if you were to go onto lynchlicks.com, the site itself, you can actually buy into that, and you can get. I have like fifty of my my favorite hammer on licks, and then fifty picking licks, and then I have eighteen guitar solos that I show how to play. You know, of course, including turn up the radio and and um, hammerhead and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, there's there's a lot of stuff on there. And then you can also get you know um, uh, the three albums that we did on RCA mastered on there. Um, the Mystic Pieces album, which was released in '97. You can also get my solo record Network 23 on there remastered. 
And so there's just a lot of stuff. You can get, you can get my books on there. You can get my instructional video. So I have that site up as well. Awesome. one. Well, I want to thank you for coming yeah. on, Steve. So people, go to his website. Go to my website. My website's coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter. That's at coopertalk. And, yeah, that's about it. So keep listening. Look up Autograph. Look up Steve. YouTube it. Google it. Check out the tunes. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.